Seven seconds left. Tannehill will throw it. And this will end it after the shovel. Or will it? Miami running around, circling. Oh, look out! Gronkowski didn't have the angle! Touchdown! Oh, Kenyon Drake! A miracle! kind of been my uh my new thing to come in the podcast room on thursday night when everyone's asleep and uh finish up the podcast and put it up and have it up there for friday morning i've been enjoying this last couple weeks and i just finished watching the uh chiefs and chargers play uh the uh, thursday night game felt like a playoff game in arrowhead and if it was a playoff game the chiefs has lost the last six there they don't want a playoff game at home since 1993 when they ended up losing to the Bills in the AFC Championship game. But a uh, really great game. Phillip Rivers, nice comeback, fourth quarter comeback, down 14. Gets the two touchdowns on the last two drives. They go for two and get it, and they get a big win in the AFC. The Saints were kind of asleep for six quarters there. I can't say I wasn't getting a little bit nervous, but like the Cleveland game way back in week two, I never felt like we were going to lose to Tampa Bay on Sunday and end up getting a 14-point win on the road in division. I'll take that any game. Uh, anytime you play a division team on the road, I'll take a 14-point win. I'm sure the Patriots uh, would have taken a 14-point win in Miami, where they've lost like five of the last six or something crazy. It's not the best Dolphins teams of all time or anything either. But uh, welcome to the Sportscasters. It's Season 8, Episode 21, the second last episode of the year of Season 8. So we're going to get 22 episodes uh, this year, which is probably the least we've ever done, but it's probably a lot considering where I was in September. Um, but I feel like I'm in a good groove, take a little bit of break and be back around that first week of January, do the season premiere of episode nine. I'm going to do everything I can to promote it. But season nine is starting. I'm going to get out there and try to cash in some favors. So if you think I might, you might owe me a favor, be a good time to dodge me. Uh, I am Steve Bennett. This is the Sportscasters. Uh, great show for you today. So here's what we got. Greg Renoff. He's a historian and an author who wrote a book called Van Halen Rising about the the, uh, the the beginnings of Van Halen and how they rose from immigrants to rock stars. Uh, uh, Greg is also an expert on the New York Jets. So we'll talk to him about the Jets. Not much, a little bit. But mostly we're going to talk Van Halen and rock and roll and have a little bit of fun today. We'll do that in a second. Also, uh, a guy named David Grisbowski uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, I got this book on a guy named Tom Gola, and uh, would you please promote it? And we put it in the book club. It's called Mr. All Around, and I read it over the weekend. A really interesting read about a really interesting guy, a basketball star from the 50s, uh, who won an NCAA championship, an NBA championship. Served the country at war, served the, the country uh, in the military, really lived an amazing life. 
Uh, and we'll have David on after the book club update to talk to him about this book, which would make a great Christmas gift. And then one last thing. I think I'll talk TV today. We got real heavy last week, so we'll back off on the heaviness a little bit. We'll talk about my favorite TV shows of 2018 and also talk about some things I streamed in 2018 that weren't necessarily new, uh, but things I enjoyed. So we'll talk a little TV there. Uh, Don't forget you can find this episode of the podcast and all episodes of this podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. If you have any questions, if there's a book that you'd like me to mail you, I got some. If you just want a book, a sports book, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. I have some stuff laying around. And also, if I owe you a book, I have a stack of packaged books ready to go to the post office. I just need to get out to the post office. I went one day to find it closed because George Bush had a funeral. So they had the post office closed. Um, so I missed that, but I will get books to you. And if you want a book, I have some extras of some books that I could get you. I have the Jim Florentine book. I have some good stuff. So if you want something, email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. A couple other podcasts I want to mention real quick. Uh, first, the motivation through music podcast is back. It's a podcast. I second Mike and produce my friend, Matthew Sobalski. And, uh, what we do is we look at an album or a year or a song, or a theme, or a genre, something like that in music. We break it down, and this week, after a long hiatus, we returned and did a podcast on the Rush album, Moving Pictures, at m through Pod on Twitter for more information about that, or soundcloud.com slash m3mpod on there as well. And then, of course, you can, uh, uh, the best place for more information on that is just on Twitter, at m through Pod. Uh, also... I am doing my research for the Adams Division podcast. We are doing Summer Slams. I believe we said we were going to do 88 to 99. Uh, Royal Rumble 88 to 99. So I'm going through those. We'll do that sometime in January. Uh, I work on that with Peter Winson from Greetings from Allentown. And uh, I'll talk to you more about his show in the last segment. But at GF Allentown Pod there. All right. Enough plugs for right now. I'm kind of flustered a little bit for some reason. Got to take a deep breath. We're going to come back with Greg Renoff, who's making his debut today. Uh, David Grzbowski's making his debut today. We'll update the book club, and like I said, we'll talk about TV. And one last thing. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back. Our first guest today lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's a historian who got his bachelor's degree at Rutgers before getting a master's at Ole Miss. He's making his debut on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Van Halen rising author, Greg Renoff. What's up, Greg? Welcome to the show. How you doing, buddy? Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, uh, I'd heard about your book. I think it was about a year ago or so you were on Eddie Trunk's serious show. Kind of talking yeah. about the book, and um, I kind of forgot about it. And then he did like a best of where you were on the best of, and I'm like, oh, I got to download that. So I, I ran out of Apple Books and downloaded it right away, so I wouldn't forget again. And then usually when I download a new book, I'll read like a page or two 
uh, just to get it going, and then I'll come back to it, and then I end up kind of reading the whole thing like a day and a half. Um, and I was like, oh, I should reach out, oh, cool. see if we can talk. And then uh, I was following your Twitter, kind of a, a cool thing, and you and there's this like Van Halen video from Buffalo from the 70s, this like really cool video you posted. So I was like, oh, this is apparently was the right time as like a sign to yeah, reach out. So. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, what's really interesting about thinking about the history of Van Halen is that it's in the back in the day, back when we were we were kids, rock bands like Van Halen or Judas Priest or I mean anybody really would, would do these tours where they would tour these smaller markets. They play like Binghamton, they play Rochester and Buffalo, and then they play New York City. You know, and so it was sort of it's sort of interesting to think about that. I mean, you know, I know these some occasionally these bands will pass through these cities in upstate New York now or western New York, but it, it was that was the, the pretty much the the norm and so yeah you you would get manhandled in buffalo every year get them in rochester every year for a long time and so yeah it's kind of cool to think about that that when they would really would barnstorm the whole country and stuff like that but um yeah it's uh it's uh, definitely a a a fun uh it was a fun era of my life to look back on that sort of what inspired me to write the book kind of living through the that as a teenager as a van halen fan and all that stuff and so now to be fair i am a little bit more of a van hagar fan than a van roth fan but i've also never looked at it as like pitting one against the other i've just kind of you know appreciated both bands for what they are they to me are so different that i've never felt the need to pit them against each other but i think for me and to some degree van roth is kind of my dad's van halen you know and then yeah and van hagar is more like my van halen you know uh you know balance came out when i was in high school and Van Halen one came out when my dad was in high school. You know, my dad went right. to, to see Van right. Halen with Roth. I went in '95 and saw him with Hagar. You know, so I do lean a little bit Hagar, but I like both. Um, I think when Eddie Trunk did his top 20 Van Halen songs, I think I had 13 to seven or 14 to six, something like that. Um, Hagar songs to Roth songs, but I mean, I love both bands, and I, and I mean, the other three guys are equally as fascinating as the singers. I know sometimes we can get bogged down and, oh, do you like this or do you like that? And that's kind of what I liked about your book was that it was really more about, I mean, it's about Roth, obviously, but it's really about the other three guys, specifically Eddie and Alex and kind of their background and them, you know, their their parents, you know, uh, the interesting story about the dad and they they think they're coming to America for the American dream and it doesn't go well and it, was it Eddie or Alex or one of them said like that the American dream is bullshit or something like that. It was like a story in the book. And yeah. 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 So the thing is, yeah. So, um, as a Van Halen fan, I, um, that was sort of the thing that kind of, what came together for me was that I grew up as a uh, big Van Halen fan. I, I graduated high school in 87. So I was sort of, I, my start on Van Halen was the 1984 album. And then I sort of ended up with like a year of Roth Van Halen. And then I got thrown into the world of, Hagar Van Halen and I never you know I never had any big animus I always kind of joke on Twitter about it there's sort of like this thing where if you like Roth you have to hate Hagar and I don't have any I don't dislike Sammy Hagar um you know if you would ask me like to pick my favorite Van Halen records I'd pick probably the Roth albums first but I you know I, I listen to the, the Hagar albums on occasion and stuff and uh but the thing is that, that for me as a fan and I uh, as a historian a guy who ended up going to grad school and becoming a historian I was really interested in how the band started even as like a just a a fan of the band before I even thought about writing anything about Van Halen. And there was all this sort of half speculation. There was a lot of stuff that really wasn't very accurate on Wikipedia and the brothers were sort of, 
had told some stories and Roth had told some stories. And so I ended up kind of going back and delving into the whole history of the band and interviewing people who grew up with those guys, you know, uh, hired them to the play in backyard parties, promoters, um, musicians who gig with them. Like Van Halen would play like on the sunset strip with other band members who would be in other bands and interviewed Michael Anthony and other people who were more correct, directly connected to the band. But to me, what, what you're saying is really was the thing that kind of hooked me that wanted to do a book was the, the difference between, you have David Lee Roth, who's this flamboyant, definitely this uh, oddball guy who was not like a lot of other kids who were teenagers at the time. This uh, Jewish guy who's going to this largely black high school in, in Pasadena because he gets bused there and he ends up, you know, kind of kind of becoming a little bit different in terms of how he, he saw the world and the world of music and these types of things. Then you have the Van Halen brothers who are kind of more like they were immigrants, obviously, and the immigrant story is really important, but they sort of became more like a white bread hard rock guys. They'd be like Black Sabbath and David Lee Roth like James Brown and sort of how that all came, came together musically and the two different, very different um, ways of seeing the world all came together to perform Van Halen. That's what really hooked me to want to do the book. I said, this is kind of interesting. You had this guy who's relatively privileged. Um, his father was a doctor and you have the brothers who were by, they were poor, but they were definitely what you would call like blue collar kids who their father was a was a musician, but he also worked washing dishes. He did other other, other work to kind of make ends meet. So he, they definitely were not, by any stretch of the imagination, rich. And yet you have this; these guys all come together and make music, and uh, that was to me was the hook for the for the story of Van Halen Rising. Yeah, the whole the whole way they came together and joined joined forces to to bring the band uh, up out of L.A. and eventually to conquer the world. One of the parts that really fascinated me was just kind of like where they played. Like my dad uh, did lights and sound for this pretty popular band in, in the seventies in Buffalo called uh, cock Robin. And what's interesting about them is they had a rival band in Buffalo called Talus and Ta oh, yeah. and Talus made the decision to stop being a party band who played covers and to go to LA and, and write originals and Billy Sheehan emerged from Talus. Uh, was part of that band where my dad, the band that my dad worked for called Cock Robin, never did that. They always, you know, played the played the the gigs. At I would say to my dad, like, where did you guys play? He's like, oh, we played at the drive-in on one night, or we played at a high school, you know, or we played at this, right. you know, at this party, and and that's basically what Van Halen did until they made the decision to start pursuing originals, and then they play that show with UFO which I think was the first time they played a show of all originals. But that was really interesting right. to me, just kind of like seeing it in a grander stage in L.A. and how they evolved and how they would get like 2,000 people to play at some dude's house or like some park by his house or yeah. whatever. And just about how amazing that is and how unparalleled that is today, right? I mean, that could never happen today, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I think it would be hard to imagine that. I mean, I think I think – you know, you, you, there's just so many more more immediate ways of getting your music out today. You don't need to get signed by a record company, first of all. You can sort of get your music on YouTube and get, get um, you know, just go as an independent artist and get going that way. But what you were saying about the, the cover songs, I think that's a really interesting point that doesn't get talked about enough because that's one of the things that Michael Anthony talked a little bit to me about, and then I quoted him from a couple of other interviews that he did over the years, is that they had to kind of make a conscious decision to do this, that they, as a cover band, so at the time in the seventies, it was popular for people to go to nightclubs and hear bands. Like today, it's not as big of a thing. Like no one's going to go to like a, a you know a bar restaurant and hear a band play five forty-five minute sets of music. I don't I don't think that I don't even 
do that exist anymore where you could do that. But that was a thing to do where you would go out all night. And you, you know, maybe you show up at eight o'clock and you hear three sets of the band and you go home or, you know, or you show up for the early sets and then leave or you say all five sets. And so you had to learn a lot of songs to be able to do that. And what you ended up to make money, these bands like Van Halen and uh, Cock Rob and these other bands like Callus initially at first, you would play covers. You would, you right. would play other people's music. And so that's a lot of songs. And so the idea would, would be to build a repertoire at first. Some of the, some of the funnier stories, the earliest Van Halen shows, they didn't have enough music. They had to cover repeating songs and it was sort of like would piss off the bar owners because eventually, you know, eventually it's like, you don't want like this, you know, to be like playing like 20 songs like over and over again because people are like, oh, I already heard that song if you're there for three hours or something. Like, I, already, I just heard, you know, the latest, whatever, the latest Steely Dan song three times. You're right, playing it. Cream. So right, you have to build cream. up a repertoire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. You're building up a repertoire. And so, but the thing is, you can make good money doing that. And there were bands in LA that were these very successful, sounds like Cock Robin bands that would just play covers and they would have these gigs where they would play all over the city and they would, they would make a lot of money. But on the other hand, you're never going to get anywhere because no record company is going to go, oh, yeah, I want the band who can play an exact perfect cover of the Doobie Brothers. You know, that's what I want. We, no, they want original new songs. And so to have to make that leap, that was the risk, of course, because if you flop with your new music, it's, it's your own music, it's, it's over, basically. Or you're just, you know, you're, no one's going to want to hire you if no one likes your new music. And so that was kind of the risk that Van Halen had to take, where they knew they would be much more exposed uh, as um, uh, to to basically the marketplace to be like, Oh yeah, actually we're not playing hits anymore. We're playing our own songs and maybe people won't like them. And so that was a big, a big deal. Um, but if you wanted to make it, that's what you had to do. You had to be able to show, showcase your own songwriting. Uh, you know, it wasn't an era in the seventies where bands, you know, like when Frank Sinatra did an album in the seventies, obviously he was an established artist. He was, he was not writing the songs. He was playing other people's songs, but by the time the, excuse me, the sixties, but then the seventies rolled around the basic thing like the Beatles and these other groups, Zeppelin, you know, you, you mostly wrote your own material. So that was the expect expectation. And so, yeah, it's interesting to think about that. And that was going over, you know, the thing is there were bands all over the country, like you're saying about Cock Robin and Talos and Buffalo. It's a perfect example. There was other bands like Twisted Sister, for example. That's one we know. But there were all sorts of bands like Twisted Sister in New York who did that, who played that circuit in New York, Long Island, Westchester County, into New Jersey, yeah. Connecticut. They were playing the circuit. And eventually they got a deal, but there were all over the country bands probably as popular on the local level, or maybe close to as popular as Van Halen and, and Twisted Sister were, but never made it, right? They just never, they didn't write good enough originals, and they never kind of broke out of the scene. So that was kind of a, you know, it's kind of a universal story in a lot of ways. Of course, the, the part of the difference, how big Van Halen got, they became superstars. But um, yeah, I think people who were musicians in the 70s, like you said, your dad was working uh, for a band, he could relate probably to the stories of that that sort of you're hauling your gear every night and pickup trucks and station wagons you're setting up. And of course it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a grind and, uh, but it's also a lot of fun. Yeah. And I actually heard Rick Emmett tell a really similar story about triumph and about how they were making all this money in Toronto playing the circuit, you know, just playing cover songs. And then right. he's like, they made the decision to go and, and write their own music and, and to stop doing that. And he's like, I was buying my groceries on my credit card. He's like, we went from making all this money, you know, to this period of making basically nothing um, while we reestablished right. ourselves to then, you know, obviously breaking out and having allied powers. And I mean, however big Triumph got, I mean, they're huge here in Buffalo, but I know that not as big as like a Van Halen, but I mean, they played the, the, the U.S. festival in 83, one of the big bands on that. Yeah, they were yeah. very, they were a very big band. I mean, yeah, they were not, 
they were not on the level of Van Halen. Right, not Van Halen. They were very big. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's interesting, right? They probably were like great at playing Zeppelin and Rush covers. You know, it's like, right. like who wouldn't want to go hear Rick Emmett sing Robert Plant? Oh, hell yeah, yeah. I'm sure he was great at it. And oh. I'm sure, right? You're like, oh yeah, this is great. Like every night you can sit there with your beer and at the bar and watch him play. Uh, but yeah, that's the thing. These bands would get kind of stuck in this rut. Uh, but it was it was really uh, is also the sort of the do it yourself part of it too, where you could where at the time you know Van Halen had a few people who sort of quasi managed them in the early days, but they really weren't managers. They were people who were just like you know whatever, like booking them and stuff like that. So they were basically doing it um, you know on their own. Even when Gene Simmons came along and was like you know who's your manager? They didn't at the time they didn't even have a manager. So it's also interesting to think about how you could you basically just do your own hard work and not having like a whole team of like you know, like professional handlers, basically like, like at that point crafting their career, which is those guys working and building a, building a following. That was really what it was, which is interesting and cool too. There isn't some like, you know, guy in a Hollywood, you know, Beverly Hills office, like helping to, you know, build the career of this band they want to break on MTV or something like that. That you know, wasn't like that at all. So cool. And a cool thing about, about your book is a lot of the visual aspect to it, like the flyers from that time uh, for parties or whatever that are in the book or pictures uh, where you see them kind of building their brand and and how that they were trying to tackle the uh, tackle the scene and how they were able to draw those people, I mean they're they're pretty pretty unbelievable. It's just an unbelievable it, story. It's really yeah the whole the way that you know people um, talked a lot about this with me. The flyers were a very big part of the scene back then. Um, you know even the very earliest Van Halen backyard parties that were flyers. That was just what people did. They would go and you would whatever, it'd just be some stoner kid in the back of, of art class or, you know, in the sophomore year, like, would draw this flyer, like, you know, Van Halen, my house, 8 o'clock, Thursday, you know, my parents are out of town, they would draw these flyers, and then they would go to the, to the copy shop and, like, have them, like, you know, mimeographs and then hand them out. Um, you know, but eventually it became much more of a, a, a sort of bury people in flyers where the, where the numbers became bigger. Obviously, if you have a promoter, and the, some of the, the later concerts they did before they became signed to Warner Brothers, they were, and even after they were signed to Warner Brothers, they were doing these gigs in Pasadena at the Pasadena Civic. And these flyers, you know, 10,000 flyers they put out. You know, they did, the band would hand some out, and then they had, the promoter would pay girls, whatever, like pay them like five bucks an hour to go out and like flyer every place, every car they could find in a parking lot. Uh, Michael Anthony talked to me. I don't know if I quoted him in the book, but he told me about how they would go to Disneyland. Like they would just go out there and they would like put flyers in every single card or Dodger State. Like if Aerosmith was playing at Dodger Stadium, you know, they would go out to Dodger Stadium and they would put like flyers under every single card they could find, you know, and like 90% of the people were like, what the hell is this? They throw it away. But they just, it was the way of the way of getting the word out. Um, it was cheaper than newspaper advertising. And of course you were much more likely probably to get a rock fan to look at a flyer probably stuck under their window if you get the right place to put it than you would in a newspaper ad. And so that, that was the sort of the do it yourself all aspect of it too, which now I think it's kind of long gone, but um, it continued. That continued up through the eighties into the nineties. Even people would talk about how after again, this is long after Van Halen is big. This is when, you know, Sammy Hagar is in the band that you would walk across the strip and there'd be flowers on every telephone pole as high as you could reach and higher of every band, like Motley Crue, whoever, whoever, whatever the local bands that were trying to make it would flyer every place they could to get the word out and yeah the whole visual aspect of it too i think that was kind of the cool part too you could kind of uh, craft your own image with a photograph there were a couple of girls who photographed van halen for the for those flyers kind of a 
one of the girls in particular was really great at capturing their hair. Like she would have them like toss their hair around, like their hair would be kind of flying in the pictures to make them look like they were really rocking out and stuff. And um, thinking about that and the early logos, which were very different than the finished, the finished Van Halen logo and things like that, just the way they were trying to, yeah, just basically do that whole, whole from the, from the ground up thing. And eventually when they start getting on the sunset strip in 76 and 77, it becomes a little bit of a different deal because you have the nightclubs that are willing to advertise in the LA times and things like that for the, for the, for the gigs. But I, I think, yeah, that whole way of spreading the word was just, uh, yeah, totally, totally different. I and mean, people talked about too, like you would, you know, it would, they, if someone got a flyer, these women would, who were teenagers at the time, high school girls told me they would, you know, they'd pick up the phone and they'd call all their friends and be like, I just got the flyer. It's going to be this person's house at this time. And, you know, they would just call everyone they could once they got a hand of the flyer. Cause that was the way you spread the word. There was no Twitter. There was no text messaging. There was no, you know, you're not going to write them a letter. You just would call or you just pass along the flyer. And, uh, lo and behold, people, people would find the parties. I mean, that's the other thing too, actually, that as long as we're on this topic, people told me, which was really, I thought kind of a cool, cool anecdote was that people said like, sometimes you would hear like, Oh, the party's going to be at this, development or this subdivision and you wouldn't like people would say oh i don't remember the address or whatever but they say yes it's out at chapman hills or chapman woods that would be the name of the development and people told me that you would like <laughs> you would pull if you were especially if it was later at night you'd pull in the Just development cars and you did yeah look for the cars <laughs> as you roll down the window and listen, listen and you'd be it. like um, oh okay the band and try to like follow the noise and then you park and then of course you park and you could park and then people would be coming from the party or going but where is it and they say oh it's over here you know and you go and but uh yeah a couple of people told me that that you would just you know you could just roll down your windows and you could hear the band it would be so like you'd be like five blocks away and it'd be so loud um those parties didn't last very long either uh the ones that are, i wrote about in the book were kind of unusual because they probably you know people's memories are probably foggy they probably went on where the band played for an hour or so but that was long you know, because a lot of times these parties would, you know, the band might only get 15 minutes in before the cops came and pulled the plug. Other right. ones went hours and hours, but, but, um, you know, the ones that lasted an hour or two with a lot of people were, were, uh, were pretty memorable. Cause sometimes, you know, the cops would be kind of ahead of the curve. They would kind of figure out and kind of break the party up before it even started. And, uh, on that fun topic too, I was told by a couple of people, I don't know, I would have to ask the band members and, uh, whether they would admit this or not, but that actually people suspected sometimes the cops were called by the band itself. Like they'd just be like, cause they'd get paid either way. Uh. Like they'd already been paid. Like, right. <laughs> like, uh, it. we don't feel like playing tonight. And they would like call the cops on their own parties. And I don't know if that's actually true or not, but, um, and I kind of doubt it is, but you know, cause who, I mean, who wants the cops to come and maybe, you know, bust you or whatever. I mean, no one, no one probably wants the cops like coming through and storming through your, your, your equipment or whatever. And just, being around but anyway that was kind of the suspicion that the band was like kind of making out by like going oh we don't have to you know we're done for the night it's eight o'clock we're done and we've gotten paid a hundred bucks or whatever you know so there's um like something romantic about this whole thing maybe that's a not the right word but like i was reading the book and just thinking like about my favorite bands like my top bands you know like i'm a huge pearl jam fan or whatever i've been to 83 pearl jam shows and um i was just thinking like because in buffalo it's not the biggest music scene here, but like we have the Google Dolls, and you'll meet people, and they'll tell these stories. And most of the time, I feel like right. they're bullshit. You know what I mean? They'll be like, "Oh yeah, you know, uh, I saw Johnny Resnick in the hallway at McKinley High School, and he had a notebook." Right. And you know, it's like bullshit like that. You know, and and then you think about your favorite bands, and like what? Like I think about these people in L.A., like some dude that was at this party, and like 
then like five years later was at the forum and saw him, you know, and then 30 years later was at the tour they did, what, four years ago or whatever, you know, like, yeah, just to yeah, be able to a, be like one of those guys just blows my mind. Like, there's just something amazing about that to me. There's a friend of a woman who's a very good, her name is Jan, very good friend of mine. Um, I, I met through the book, but her older brothers were, were friends with the Van Halens. And so they went, to, you know, she was probably like in middle school when Van Halen starts, like where the book is kind of starting. And uh, she remembers Van Halen, again, this is like, you know, way, this is like four years before the first record comes out, playing in her living room. You know, basically like her parents were, were, were um, pretty tolerant of it. They would be like, okay, we're going to go out. We'll be home by 11 o'clock. Just make sure you have it all shut. Like whatever. Let them play. They'd let the band practice. Basically, they'd let the guys play music in the living room. And she'd be like, you know, they'd be like, make sure Jan goes to bed or whatever, you know, shut her door or whatever. And she, she would sit down there and like, you know, on the stairs and listen to Van Halen play like Alice Cooper songs or something like that. And this is, you know, this is, and this her, she grew up and they would come to the house when she was, was, um, out of high school to visit the brothers. And this is after they're famous and everything. And, you know, as time went on and those guys became kind of more isolated by their fan, they didn't come around as much anymore, but yeah, but she went to the forum and like, it's like weird, right? It's like, you know, like you grow up and you're like, Oh, these are my brother's friends. And then all of a sudden, you know, 20 years later, Oh, these are my brother's friends who are playing coliseums, you know, and stadiums. And so, yeah, it's interesting to think about that. And yeah, it's, it is, it is sort of this whole, for me was for me, it was a very writing the book was kind of a fun thing because isn't it like every, it's like everybody's like high school dream to have that happen. Like your local band, like we all had bands we liked in high school, like friends of mine and my night, I have friends still who were in bands. Um, I'm still friends with the guys who were in bands in high school. Of course, you know, 99% of these bands never go anywhere. 99.9% of these bands never go anywhere. And, um, one of the guys actually has gone on to be a fairly successful, uh, producer, classical music producer and stuff like that but yeah like the idea of being like yeah i saw this band play like your dad your dad saw talus right talus yeah. oh yeah a fellow, you know and david mm-hmm. lee roth and so it's kind of a cool you know billy sheen wanted david lee roth and all that stuff it's cool right be like yeah i saw billy sheen when he played in the clubs um yeah so it, it is sort of this i think for a lot of people it's sort of your local homegrown talent it's probably analogous to like hey you know i went to high school with x football player who I was going to say that an NFL superstar. No, I was going to yeah, say right? because like the same type of cool thing. I worked, I worked at a, a hockey rink in Buffalo called holiday twin rinks. And when Patrick Kane was a kid, you know, when I worked there, when I was in high school, Patrick Kane was like a squirt. And when he would come in the yeah. rink, there was a buzz. People were like, Oh, Kane's playing on rink one right now. And right. You know, you, you would like go down there and check out Kane and watch him buzz around all these other poor 10 year olds. You know, and then a couple of years later, it was like, okay, well, he's in London playing juniors now, and oh, he's the first pick in the draft. You know, oh, he just won the Stanley Cup in overtime, whatever. So Patrick Kane's kind of like that, I guess. But there's a lot more athletes, maybe, than bands. I don't know. There's just something cool I feel like about, you know, whether you're someone who saw a Triumph when they were a cover band, like we were talking about earlier, or in this Van Halen scene. There's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, part of it is like. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just the superstardom aspect of it too, right? That there, yeah. it'd be like, you know, like LeBron. I mean, like you, you're giving a good example. That's a good example. But it's like, it's, it's, and so that's sort of unusual that you have a person like you're saying who sort of went on to become a Stanley Cup winner, all these things, and the big success, and he's the first maybe pick the, and everything. But yeah, he's yeah, maybe the like, best American hockey player ever. Like he's a, he, yeah, right. I don't know what so you like know about hockey, but like he's a superstar, like a top guy ever. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's the, that's the unique aspect of it. Sort of, sort of like. 
you know, rather like a guy from my high school ended up playing um, in the NBA and he played for the Houston Rockets and stuff and actually did some coaching. But yeah, he never went on to be like a superstar, but it's still, it's like, cool. You're like, Oh, guy from my high school played in the NBA for several years and has coached. And, um, but yeah, to sort of have that, like you're saying the superstar, so you sort of understand that sort of, Oh, well, I was sort of, you know, brushed elbows with greatness or I got to see it before kind of got to see it before everyone else did too. That's the romantic part too, too, that people, you know, <laughs> people tell me they like, be like, did you? I'd be like, did you go on to see Van Halen later? Be like, well, not really. Be like, I used to pay a dollar to see him in the backyard, and I liked it. And I listened to the radio and liked the records. But like, some people were like, like almost felt like, I don't know, like they didn't want to like stand on the top of a coliseum to see a band they used to see in in the backyards. It's not that they didn't like Van Halen. They were like, it's something against those guys. And I listened to their records and stuff. But he's like, <laughs> like yeah, it's sort of like it's sort of like yeah, you know, it's sort of like the magic had sort of gone out of it for me because it become this big thing where everyone loved Van Halen and where it was sort of our art. They were our local band, you know, that type of thing, which is kind of fun to think about too. I was reading the uh, David Lee Roth article that came out today or whenever it came out. I don't know. I read. I just saw <laughs> yeah. it today. You know, he's saying that maybe they're gonna play Yankee Stadium or whatever. But um. I was kind of thinking about this irony because I had just kind of read the book and I was thinking about this band that these amazing self-marketers, these like guys who were motivated in the 70s to print these flyers and the way they hustled and busted balls and the way they sure. like overcame this kind of bias against the type of music they played or whatever. And now you, you fast forward 40 years later and they're these super tight-lipped guys that never do interviews and don't talk and just skip their 40th anniversary and you don't hear kind of a word from them or about it. And I heard you telling, I, th- I think it was you telling a story about how they wanted to do these like unbelievable remaster albums and Van Halen like wouldn't do it. They just wanted like even more simplistic reissues than what originally came out. And it's just kind of like this irony. Yeah. They want that, to... yeah that there's this band who did everything that now wants to do nothing. It's just like this, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's like a lot. There's like so much to unpack there. I mean, I think the thing is that they, the um, there's this obvious lack of love between the brothers and David Lee Roth, and you know, people can say whatever they want. Um, you know, I have I've never been in the room with all three of those guys, and I obviously don't have the personal ability to say like, yes, I can hundred percent verify this. But I think it's pretty clear if you follow this band that there's there's definite problems in the relationships. I mean, they just don't. <laughs> they just aren't friends, right? And so right. it's like a lot of bands. So I think I think part of the deal is that you have this guy who is super voluble, David Lee Roth, who loves to talk. And in the old days, right, you couldn't shut him up. He had his own radio show. He'd like talk for hours and hours and hours. Right, he took over um, for Stern. We're now, right, right. And when so Stern for now, yeah. it's much more, much more um, controlled by Van, I just call it Van Halen Inc. In other words, right. instead of it being four peers there's basically a couple of guys who are the ceos and a couple of people who are kind of a, a rung below that um or a person is a rung below that and so it's up to the brothers to kind of let the shoe drop and so the fact that ross is out and talking now tells the world that almost certainly especially because of things he's saying that they're going to go out next year and i think that's part of what goes on it's almost like um you know like google you know, the Google CEOs don't just like run on CNBC without permission to start talking about whatever they just like, you know, there's obviously a kind of a protocol, like, Oh, we have a PR department and we decide when we're going to talk and we'll talk when we want to talk. And we'll, you know, if there's a new product, in other words, if there's a new product release, like a new version of Chrome is coming out, you just don't like wake up like six months before it's coming out and decide I'm going to go on, you know, go on MSNBC and talk about Chrome. 
you wait until the, the launch comes. And that's sort of the way they think about things now. Um, to me, it's, you're, you're right about the, the ironies there are sort of thick because you had a guy who was one of the great talkers of all time, one of the great promoters. And I think they kind of, for either to make it work because it's so tense and they want to keep things more controlled and sort of make sure that everyone takes the steps that are careful and sort of not going to upset the apple cart inside the band, how that works. You, they, they sort of muzzle Roth. That's my opinion that that Roth is kind of muzzled. I personally believe that Roth would talk all the time. If you want, you know, he'd be like on Joe Rogan all the time. He'd be like, you know, know, whatever. He's just, you know, he's just, he's a talker and he likes to, likes to communicate that way. So the fact that he's so shut down, like he doesn't tweet for, for a year, uh, I'm not saying he might be the biggest person on Twitter, but you know, the fact that he doesn't say anything leads me to believe that it's a much more controlled corporate style. Here's what we're going to do. And here's the plan. No one's going to do X until this date happens. And then we're going to decide to do this or that or whatever. So it's great that he's out that that's, that's a good sign. And, uh, this very well could be the last go around. He also considered the fact that, that, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, let's play a game real quick. I'll give you a lineup and you give me a percent from zero to a hundred that this ever happens. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll go through a few. hundred being, hundred being. Absolutely will happen. Being... Zero, no chance. Okay. All okay. right. So original Van Halen one lineup concert or tour. The brothers, I, I, I Michael, say, Anthony, and Dave. Right. Yeah. Right. I'd say for next year, I'd say there is a 75% chance that that is the lineup that goes out. What's the chance? 75%. Okay. Now let's take Michael out and put Wolf Wolfie in. I'd say there's about a, my estimate guess is probably like a 30% chance. All right. Now let's take Dave out and put Sammy in. No, zero. Zero. So then you're even less than zero that they ever do what they should do. It would be the greatest concert of all time and have them both. Uh, yeah. I mean, I look, I've said this before, and I've had, yes, less than zero. I think I've said this many times before. Uh, Irving Azoff manages Van Halen. He is the most powerful rock manager. He he probably knows what's non-starter and what's, you know, what is a no-go and what he would dream about. I'm sure if he could, like, draw it up the way he wanted to, I mean, of course he would say, hey, guys, you want to make the most money? Get Sammy, get Dave, and go out. Now, that's – Could you imagine what Coachella – Could you imagine what Coachella would pay them to play those two weekends to headline that thing with both of yeah. those guys? I mean, right. they, they could get it's like, hundreds of millions of dollars like, probably for two weekends. Sure. I mean, it, it'd be like – I mean, there's all sorts of things to think about. Like, you could do, like – other bands that could sort of, I mean, I maybe don't know exact exact analogies are not easy to come off, but um, there are certainly other bands that have had acrimonious splits of one kind or another where you kind of like get like oh, the original Pink Floyd back together. I'm sure if Irving Azoff managed Pink Floyd, he'd be like, hey, Roger Waters, David Gilmore, Nick Mason, let's let's all, you know, all the guys, get all the guys back together. Of course, that would be the most, but they're going to say no effing way. Like you can pay me a billion dollars and I'm not doing it. So um, I, I don't think... I think that well, the Zeppelin, rock factor alone. Zeppelin's famously turned down yeah, hundreds right, of Zeppelin, millions, right? Right. So, so right, right. So, my point is that that uh, it's not going to happen. Maybe not because the manager doesn't think it'd be it would be a worth trying, but because it would it would implode, and Roth would never agree to it. First of all, so that's why I think. I mean, I think there's. I've, I've said this too. I think that it's probably 
that would be the most marketable. You're, you're dead on. That would be the most marketable thing they could do. This is probably the second most marketable thing, honestly, would probably be we get back with Hagar, probably close with the original lineup with, with Michael Anthony. Because I think, honestly, um, I, I mean, I love Michael Anthony. There's probably more juice. And try, again, just trying to just market something, right? Not saying what I prefer, what I think is more musical, right. musical integrity, whatever. To market something, to try to sell the most tickets, it's probably an easier sell to say, Sammy Hagar, back with Van Halen for the first time in 20 years, than to say Michael Anthony, who most people, the average person doesn't know who that is, right? They know, you know, just like anybody, I know David Lee Roth and, and Eddie Van Halen. If I'm an average rock fan, you don't know all the members. It's like, you know, like, name five members of Pro Band. I can do Stone Gossard, Eddie Eddie Vedder, I kind of go down the line and sort of you start to stumble. You're like, uh, 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 right. The same Jeff thing. And Matt, Mike McCready, um, Matt Cameron, for the record. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right, <laughs> right. But so, um, so that's. I mean, I think that's why I think that there. It sounds like based on what Ross said today, and I had kind of heard a couple of, couple of things that kind of hints that 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 maybe there had been a little bit of softening between Eddie and Michael Anthony. I, I'm not. I can't personally verify that, but people have sort of like whispered that to me. And I, you always have to take it through the grain of salt. Like, oh, okay, well, maybe. Like, people say all sorts of stuff to me. And like, oh yeah, maybe. Um, so that you know, it could be. It could be that's what's going on. And it would. It would, in some ways, make sense too, because it would allow them to maybe take Wolf out as an opening act. Wolf has his own music, and at some point, uh, I think for Wolf, Wolfie's sake, I'm sure he understands this too. He's got to sort of cut himself free of the, the, his uncle and his dad and, and try Cause you know, eventually those guys are going to want to sit home and not tour anymore. And so, you know, he's, he's done his time in Van Halen and maybe they'll do another run together as, and because they could very well be just Wolfie next year with those guys. Like I said, that's a possibility, but I think at some point, right. You have to think like, okay, I've got to step out on my own. He has to, um, he's, he's 25 and his, you know, his uncle's, going to be pushing uh, 65, 70 at some point. So 65 now, I think. So, you know, that that would be the ideal time, too, to think like, okay, you know, the Van Halen brand is going to be all over the place if they tour with the original four guys. And then you can have Wolfie um, go along with that. And when either they tour together or just basically have that sort of Van Halen brand all over the all over the world next year. Um, Let me but, ask- you know, it's just, it's, yeah. No, I was just going to ask you, is the reason that Roth would be so against singing with Van Halen and Hagar, because Hagar is so much better than him, like is that the like the main problem? <laughs> you know, but, um, I mean, that, that, whoever I, I, you like listen, better, there's no I'm debating laughing, who the better I'm singer laughing. is. I'm, I'm so funny because I'm laughing because it's like that's like the something someone should put up on Twitter. Like that's like the like a Van Halen. <laughs> that's like that like that's like putting blood in the water for like Ross Van Halen fans. You should but just tweet that. They <laughs> that's have like to admit it. Three thousand retweets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's it's. it's I mean, I think I think if we want to be honest, that about whose voice has held up better. I think on the whole, Hagar's voice is better right now in better shape. From what I heard now, of course I haven't heard Ross sing in a year and maybe he's, he's done better. He was definitely struggling in the last Van Halen go around. He was not, I didn't think he was um, in the best vocal shape. Yeah. I doubt so it's much better. That could be. And I, but I also think, I also think to, to Roth, and I think it's a fair point. It's, it's almost like, you know, you 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 uh, you're the you're the first wife, right? You get a divorce, you come back to the marriage, and then you have to like basically put up with the like this. You basically your first wife is divorced, her second husband, and you go back and end up the the, the the other guy has to come hang out. You know, I think it's part of it. He thinks it it was his. You know, he built it, right? Like that's what he talks a lot about. Like he built Van Halen with the brothers, and that's 
that's the other thing that goes on here. I mean, I think if we're going to be honest is that the, the power has shifted. The power, Roth quit the band. So it, it's Roth's, Roth quit for whatever reason he quit. It doesn't matter. He quit the band. He walked away back in 1985. And because of that, he ceded power. He ceded it to the brothers and the ceded the whole, basically the whole band structure to the brothers. And so, you know, he's not in a position where uh, I think he feels as if he gets the credit he deserves for being one of the original um, foundations of Van Halen. And I mean that not to say that people don't see him as the original singer, but that it's, it's basically Eddie and Alex have been the common denominator, right? We think about it, they've been on every album they've right. done. They've been there from beginning to end. And so, you know, when, when push comes to shove, it's the brothers who are, you know, we can say, well, David Lee Roth is Van Halen. And sure, um, whatever, you go through all the sort of cliche things to say. It's true. David Lee Roth is the voice of Van Halen. He was the original singer. He wrote the lyrics. He wrote the melodies. You can go through all the things, you know, the market of the band, all the things that are important. Um, but when it comes right down to it, you know, it's the brothers who are the ones who have been there from from before Roth arrived till today. They were they were there all through it, and um, Roth walked away, and maybe he was pushed out. Doesn't really matter at this point. But that's the thing is that the brothers now are the ones who were who are pulling the strings. I mean, inside the band, they're the ones who make the call. You know, and it's and so uh, I also think it's interesting too to think about Roth as coming out with these new business ideas, which sort of leads me to believe that that's part of what he probably recognizes that this is probably it. And then also that, um, you know, he probably have the, uh, the revenue streams that, that Eddie has only because Eddie has been so successful with the, with the guitar stuff. And that's really, I think, you know, as much as Eddie makes off the songs and all the other things, um, but I get, I don't have any idea of the ins and outs of the, you know, who gets the t-shirt money, all that other stuff now, but, but, um, Eddie has been wildly successful over the last decade with his EVH or more, right? right. More with his guitar with stuff. He's Boston the, too. Like the, yeah. Right. Wasn't there, there's a guy in Boston. Well, with right? Rockman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah made like Tom a Schultz, right? yeah. ton of money on guitar parts, like more than he made even on that one Boston record that sold like 20 million copies right. or whatever. Yeah. That's fascinating. Right. To so me. It, to me, it's like, it's like Roth is like coming around to that idea going, Oh yeah, I need an EVH gear. Like I need, like, right. I need this, this or, or a tequila skincare for he what needs it's a worth. Tequila like Sammy. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Uh, right. The tequila—that's a whole other. That's a whole other story with Sammy, right? That. Well, I hope that someday the brothers yeah. say, "Like we got to make up for '04 because '04 sucked, and we got to at least get a couple more." They, those can't be their last Sammy shows. The, the disaster in '04. The one I seen. Sucked. You know, they're so. Anyway, they're really the the brothers. I mean, Alex almost never does interviews. Eddie does them now only when he has to. And they're typically in very controlled environments, which is fair. I mean, if you're like Robert De Niro, right, you're not like letting like some guy call you up on the phone and ask you whatever you want. Right. right you're, you're not like, coming you're on like, the sportscasters. Okay, gonna... <laughs> whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. 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 Yeah. right. You're, so you're, you're going to, it's going to be very controlled. Your publicist is going to say, okay, I'll talk to the New York times under these conditions. We're not going to talk about my divorce. We're not, whatever. Right. And so, um, you know, they've been very tight lipped about what the, the, the gripe is ultimately with, with Sammy. People have speculated at Sammy's book. Um, Sammy said some unkind things about Eddie in his book. Right. And about the business the breakup over the, sort of the Cabo Wabo stuff. The, the, over the, te- over the tequila. <laughs> right. <laughs> the whole thing. I mean, I'm laughing. I'm sure they, they, they probably like, they want to kill yeah, him for that. But yeah, funny, it's yeah. like all that, that's, no, they don't think it's funny, right? All that stuff. And so that's the other the other flip side of this, that nobody really knows 
unless you're in that very, very tight Van Halen circle, which is like the brothers and the family members and a few other people who are in their orbit, like what the exact, because it's not like, as far as I know, like Eddie has had an interview in the last five years where he said, I want to talk about Sammy. He hasn't said a word. I mean, like Sammy's basically like, beg, like, like, you know, be like, they won't call me, you know, fuck them. And you know, whatever, like all these like things. I'm like, Oh yeah. He's just looking for the, you know, he's like throwing the rock against the window, hoping they'll open up. Be like, get off my lawn. You know, say something <laughs> about, about they don't like Sammy. Right. And so, but you know, they won't give him the time of day. Um, and so it's hard to know like what the, what the exact beef is, but certainly it's something, um, where they feel very much wronged by, by Sammy that they had, you know, and so, but the thing I always say too to people is that this sort of, well, they'll never work with Sammy again. Um, they swore they'd never work with Dave again. So, um, you know, time is running out of the hourglass for those guys. They have limited time. I mean, they could maybe do, who knows, who knows how many more years Eddie and Alex have where they want to go out and play. I don't know. But, um, this you know, is what I think needs say, to happen. I hate. This is the dream scenario for any <laughs> Sammy fans. I think they need to book all this shit right, and then they start rehearsing yeah. with Roth, and it's just a disaster. Yeah. They can't stand him, and they're like, "Fuck, this isn't going to work." But we got all this shit on the books. And Michael Anthony's like, "Why don't we call Sammy?" And they're like, "All right, fuck it. We got all this yeah. shit anyway, and we can't stand Sammy Dave." Comes in with his red super right. Yeah, he just Rogers. comes <laughs> swooping in like, "All right, let's open with dreams, boys. Let's go." Uh. Real quick, I want to read. That's like something out of Saturday. That's like a Saturday Live skit. That's hilarious. I'm like, I'm <laughs> like, what are you doing here? I'm Sammy Hagar, Mr. Roger Fired. You know, I like, came to save the yeah. the Bronx. I came to save the Yankee Stadium I came concert. To save the Rock, exactly. Yeah. Oh God, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, that's I think I what's going to have to happen if he's going to come back. Right, it's going to need to be this like we need a guy because we just can't do it. It's got to be Dave fucking up. I feel like like that's how 04 I'll happened, right? That's funny. They were going to go it's back to Dave and okay. Yeah, go ahead. I had people. I had a couple of people. So last time Van Halen toured, twenty fifteen, I had a couple of people. You know, I'm not some sort of like big Van Halen reporter where I'm like getting all this these tips. I you know, but people will occasionally message me like you know every couple of weeks someone will write something and say I heard this and I'm like oh, okay, and I don't I don't repeat that stuff because 90% of the time it's, it's bullshit. And if you happen to be right, it's just like, you're lucky that they didn't change their mind. Like you might've been right at the time, but like, you know, a month later they're like, we're not doing that anymore. Like we were going to do that. And you, you might've been right. So, you know, you don't put that stuff out. But anyway, this person swore to me, swore that Sammy and Eddie have this meeting in Arizona that look at the tour dates. And, and in fact, they were in the, I can't remember that I did look and it was like the tours, crossed in the same city and they're like i swear to god you know they're it's like you know they like basically with sammy was plotting against dave and so i have no idea whether that's true or not um the only thing that was definitely was true that they were i remember that the dates did overlap where they were basically both playing i think it was somewhere in, in arizona at the same weekend or something like it was like sammy played a friday night and van Halen played a saturday night or something like that and i just you know like, there's your scenario right there where there's like the, the, the you know the two guys in the room and they're like we're gonna fire roth or whatever so i i mean I, who knows i mean i i honestly think that um that sammy has probably never you know never heard much of anything from from eddie now it's possible the other thing that's interesting to think about is that you know it may be that you know maybe alex has had some sort of loose conversations with Sammy just to sort of like, whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. the brothers don't necessarily have to be like, you know, like we all, we all hate the same people the same amount. I mean, I'm not saying that like Alex is like hanging out with Sammy or anything, but it's, it's definitely possible to think about that. Like maybe Eddie won't talk to Sammy, but you know, 
you know, maybe Eddie and excuse me, Sammy and Alex exchange Christmas cards or like birthday, you know, birthdays, they tweet, you know, they send text messages, happy birthday. Or something. I mean, I'm just making that up. And it's like, you just don't know, but ultimately it seems like there's some sort of very, you know, there's something pretty, pretty heavy duty with, um, with those guys. And, and it may just be that, again, I'm just sort of spitballing this. It may be, maybe they don't hate him at all, but maybe they just think, you know what? We're better off with Roth. That's they may think that they may talk. think he's the original singer. <laughs> yeah. We may not, you know, you may not agree. Maybe I don't agree. Someone else may not agree. It doesn't matter, but they may think we're better off with Roth. It's the original singer. And you know what? We, again, think about this. We may feel like we have more of a hold over him where Sammy can go out and tour, right. And do this whole soul career. Dave, I mean, Sammy's built up this whole brand for himself where he can be the Red Rock and go out and do his, right. his casino gigs and everything. He's had um, other bands that doesn't have that like infrastructure. Chicken place. Foot. Yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. Like, Sammy has a whole, basically, and Sammy he's a could say to the brothers, whatever. well, right, yeah. F you, I'm out of yeah. here. Like, you guys are pissing me off, I'm out of here. It's not going to work, right? He'd walk away. Whereas with someone like Roth, again, my, my suspicion is that Roth probably feels more beholden because this is a position he's in musically. His career has sort of become, he's the singer of Van Halen, right? He's the de facto lead singer of Van Halen. And he's sort of not done the whole like David Lee Roth showcase tour with Jason Bonham on drums and whatever. He's not done that stuff. And so um, that could be too. They're just like, you know what? There's less bullshit dealing with Roth. We may not love Roth, but you know what? He's the original singer. We don't have to put up with half the shit. We'd have to put up with Sammy, which might be true too. That they just just figure it's just easier to deal with Roth. Um, but we don't know, right? They're never because they just they don't talk. They don't talk. It's not like they're like go, they don't go on like Eddie Trunk and, and talk, which is fine. But they're just you have to speculate. Uh, the book is called Van Halen Rising: How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. It's by a uh, historian named Greg Renoff. It's at G R E G R E N O F F on Twitter. And Greg, I want to get you out of here on this. We'll do something fun to close it out. We're not going to get to the Jets, but. They're four and nine, so I mean, how much could we really say about that? Yeah, that's not going to be say, it's something fun, right? They would yeah. be talking about the Jets. <laughs> never fun. I'm going to read you my Van Halen 20 that I wrote when Eddie uh, Trunk did it on his show, and you can pick apart my list. I thought that would be a fun way okay. to end. All right. Sure. Number 20, I have Oh, Pretty Woman. Number 19, Not, right. en- not Enough from Balance. Number 18, Unchained. Number 17, When It's Love. Number 16, Feel Your Love Tonight. Number 15, And the Cradle Will Rock. Number 14, The Seventh Seal. And number 13, Run Around. Number 12, Top of the World. Oh, I want to mention this to you. You were talking on Twitter about songs played in arenas by Van Halen. And my brother played hockey for Yale, and they won the uh, national championship in 2013. And when, they, when the siren ended oh, cool. and the confetti was coming down, Top of the World was the song that was playing. Um, oh, that's really cool. A, a quick aside, my sister-in-law played golf at Yale. So no we kidding. Go. Wow, amazing. There we go. We're both related to Yale athletes. Uh, that's no- right. It's, they're both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number 11, Dance the Night Away. Number 10, Jump, the first Van Halen song I ever heard. Number 9, Panama. Number 8, Best of Both Worlds. Number 7, Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do. Number 6, Ain't Talking About Love. Uh, the only Van Halen song I've seen Pearl Jam play. Well, Eruption too, but. That's just Mike fucking around. Uh, number five, Humans Being. Maybe the song that broke up, Van Hagar. Uh, number four, I'll Wait. Number three, Love Walks In. Number two, The Dream Is Over. And number one, Dreams. That's my list. Go ahead. Very heavy on the, very heavy on the hand, Van Hagar. Yeah, I think it's 14 uh, to 6. Say, yeah, and, I, that's, and that's, uh, 
The other thing that's interesting is very heavy on balance, which is very typically considered to be. I, I don't. I don't have any. Um, well, what have three balance, balance songs? I think it's a, three balance. Four. I think more. But don't tell me what three, love can four, do. Maybe. Yeah, I think seventh seal and not enough. Uh, hum, Humans not being not is right from yet, the so greatest love. hits, but the balance era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of. Uh, there's a, typically a lot of uh, static. People have like, "Oh, balance is terrible," and I, I actually actually like balance. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's uh, heavily biased towards Van Hagar, and uh, yeah, it's clear that you want Sammy back in the band. What about the Dream Is Over at two? A lot of people have criticized me on that one. I love the Dream Is Over. I almost yeah, had it, I almost had it one. Big fan of that band. I mean, I you know the thing is, I like I put out a, a top twenty list for what it was worth, and I really like the I love the Van Halen boogies, like the fast the fast boogie song. So it'd be like a source of infection. It'd be one. Um, that, you know, people like that. That's all. Why would that? I, but I love. So everyone's allowed to have their quirky. Yeah, I'm not a. I'm not a big uh, fan of that song. You're not a bit. You what but, would be uh, your top Hagar song? Great question. My top Hagar song. Honestly, the song I like the most is probably "Source of Infection." Now, again, it's not the biggest hit, but like, if I'm going to listen to one, right. And if I was making, if it was making like a, a legitimate like public consumption top twenty Hagar or Van Halen list, I probably would put that on number one. But I love, I love those like those fast. That goes back to the original um, thing that the brothers used to do when they would copy um, you know, Led Zeppelin and Cactus and these other bands. They'd play these fast boogie shuffles and uh, Hot for Teachers one. And so I love those. I love those those Eddie and Alex uh, things. And so yeah, um, but I also like. Uh, like top of the world is one of my favorites for sure. Um, I also really like, uh, God, what's the other one I really, I really like off of, uh, um, yeah, pound cake. I mean, I, I really like the fuck record. It's actually one of my, out of all the Hagar records. That's one I really, really like. I have some good memories of that one. I was about 20 when that one came out, 21 or something like that. So yeah, good memories. <laughs> good times. What about your favorite, do you have a favorite Sharon song? No, I'm kidding. You know, I, I love the, that record's not Gary as bad Sharon as people song. say. My, yeah. Gary, my favorite Gary Sharon song is anything off Porn Graffiti. I loved the <laughs> yeah. extreme records. I love those. Oh, I love them. I mean, Bancourt's a genius. Um, yeah, he's one of the greats. Yeah, it's just a whole, you know, um, I'd love to meet Gary. I mean, it's funny because people talk about meeting your heroes. And honestly, it's sometimes you have that apprehension. Like, I've never met um any member of Van Halen. I've never met any of those guys. And so you sort of have that apprehension. I'm sure people can relate to that. They, you know, everyone can have like the greatest experience at all with meeting people. And those guys are all, for all I know, great guys. But you did but talk you to Michael, Michael Anthony for the book, right? Yeah. I yeah. talked to Michael yeah. Anthony and I've, um, I, I gotten to know Ted Templeman, their producer, their first six records. Plus he co-produced fuck very well, but uh, he's a good friend of mine, but yeah, but just sort of like, you know how it's like, you're going to, you know, if you're a Yankee fan and you meet, finally meet Reggie Jackson or something. And he's like a dick to you. You're like, Ugh. <laughs> you're like crushed for life, you know, whatever. So it's just one of those things that sort of, uh, Gary I've heard is like, and Michael Anthony's always great. So it's like, if you're going to pick one, like you kind of figure you get go with Michael or Gary only because you kind of figure you'd have a positive guaranteed positive experience. You just don't want to catch one of those guys at a bad moment. Right. So just, they're human beings. They could be in a bad, a bad mood. And you just don't want to walk away and go out. Oh, I met ex rock star. I met Robert Plant, and he was like annoyed with me and like walked away. You know, like you just didn't want that. <laughs> be your memory. The almost so. all the Pearl Jam guys have good reputations, but Mike McCready definitely has the best, and he's the one I met 
and we talked about Crohn's disease pretty much for 20 minutes because we both have it. So it was like kind of a cool, you know, and then I sort of, I sort of met Eddie Vedder in Seattle at, at this concert hall, but I, I blew it and choked. And I actually told this story like last week on the podcast, so I won't bore everyone again. But yeah, I choked when I kind of had a chance. I mean, we were standing right next to each other and I just let him get on an elevator and froze up and blew it. But yeah, McCready was really good to me. So it's like, I almost kind of am okay if I never meet anyone else because like I met the one guy who's supposedly yeah, the nicest right. and we had this amazing time just kind of talking about how we control our Crohn's disease and it's like, all right, have a good show tonight. All right, enjoy it. Talk to you later. It's like, you know, it's like kind of a cool thing, but Greg, this was a blast. I, I could do another hour just talking and bullshitting about music. Hey, and, any time we'll, 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 uh, I don't even want to talk about, uh, you want to talk about, uh, the, uh, the bills or yeah, we should talk about, we should, do an hour flashback to Monsters of Rock at Rich Stadium. I uh, probably regret not going to. Let me ask you one Jets question. Who do you want? If you could hire the coach for next year, who would you hire? Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> someone going to win. I mean, I think there's all these names floating around. I, I, I really, I, I would love to have a guy like a, if Mike Tomlin got fired, like sign me up. Um, McCarthy, Guys who have been to the Super Bowl before and know how to build a Super Bowl winner, it's not a guarantee, but the fact that the Jets have had so many guys who have been sort of first-time head coaches, Rex Ryan, um, their current head coach, coming on the line, just all back to their history. It would be nice to get someone in here who sort of had that, that knows how to get you, like a Parcells, right, who knows how to get there. So that would be someone like, someone who is, has gotten to a Super Bowl. How about that? Yeah, you almost <laughs> I mean, need that. Like, you almost need you know, that in New York. It's harder to hire Sean Payton in New York, right? I mean, like, because when the Saints hired John Payton, you know, he was like the it offensive coordinator, but that could blow up, right? Right? That that works about right. 50, you right. Know, sometimes sure. you get Sean, Sean Payton, Payton and sometimes tomorrow, you get like Doug Marone. Take my money, right? Yeah. Exactly, Doug Mar- Doug Marone. Yeah, Doug Marone, oh, Syracuse, right? <laughs> What's that? He was the Syracuse coach, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, and, and he coached the Bills, and he's with Jacksonville now doing something. Is he, he the head coach the Bills, at Jacksonville? Right. He coached, yeah. He might be the head coach at Jacksonville. Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, he's terrible, though. He you is know, the head coach in Jacksonville. They've, he's brutal. He's been unsuccessful. I'll leave us. I'll leave you. Yeah. I'll leave your your listeners a note. As a Jets fan, you know that um, I had the indignity of watching the Jacksonville Jaguars wreck the Jets like the third week of the season. And there was no time left on the clock, or like two seconds left on the clock, and the Jaguars scored a touchdown to go up by like 20 points. Like it was over, right? The Jets couldn't even get the ball back. And Marone went for two. What a dick. And they got it. They got it. And so ever since they've gone to two, went for two against the Jets, they haven't won a game since. Ah, the curse of the two-pointer. Well, they, they beat hey, the Colts. I really enjoyed this. They beat the Colts. <laughs> this was great. <laughs> yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thank, thanks so much. I, I, I loved it. We'll do it again. Hey, you're welcome. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. And happy uh, to do it. All right, thanks, Greg. Hey, man, no problem. Take care. Bye. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. Out past the cornfields, went away.
remember if I mentioned this last week, but I was checking out the uh, Bob Seger set list for the uh, farewell tour. And uh, I was pumped to see that he added one of my favorite Seeger songs, Shame on the Moon, which he hadn't played in the set list since 1987. So I've never seen it. So I'm really excited for January when he comes to Buffalo, get to see Shame on the Moon for the first time. I want to thank Greg Renoff for being on the show. That was too much fun. I could have done that another hour probably, uh, just talking Van Halen and rock music. I had other stuff I wanted to talk to him about. I wanted to talk Rock and Roll Hall of Fame maybe. I'm going to talk rock music in general, see what he's listening to these days. And we just got into the Van Halen stuff. I thought that was really fun. Uh, feedback, uh, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Let me know if you enjoyed that. Uh, we'll talk more. I want to talk more music and TV and things like that next year. I think there's only so much sports that needs to be done. And if I can find someone who's written a cool book, uh, I really want to get Steppenwall to talk about his Sopranos book that's coming out in January. He can be tough, though. He's been on. But he's tough. Uh, so I'll try that. But email me, sportscasters at gmail.com, and let me know what you thought of that. As far as the book club, we're going to get to David Grzbowski in a second. Uh, his book, Mr. All Around the Life of Tom Gola, is available now as part of Temple University Press. And uh, you can get it wherever books are sold. And we're going to do 25 minutes or so uh, with David and try to sell this book to you in a second. Uh, the other piece of book club business is I have reached out to Keith the Cop, uh, and hopefully we will have Anthony Cumia on our season finale. Hopefully it can work out. I have reached out to him, to his camp, to Anthony Cumia's camp. His book, Permanently Suspended, is officially the last book we're on the hook for here in 2018. And the book club will take a break, and we will come back in 2019. And hopefully I'll have a first book of the year to announce uh, on the other side of the break, and hopefully it is the Seppenwall book, ideally, because I'd love to do that. So not a lot to do in the book club today. Next week on the book club, as part of the season finale, I will uh, recap some books that I think would make great Christmas gifts. I'll give some recommendations for books. If you're looking for a last-minute Christmas gift, I'll give my recommendation on what I think would make a good good purchase. So we'll do that as part of the book club next week. All right, no reason for me to flap my gums much longer. Let's take a break. We'll come back with David Grzbowski. All right, our next guest is a graduate of LaSalle, and he's the author of a new book called Mr. All Around, and he's making his first appearance on the Sportscast today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to David Grzbowski. What's up, David? How you doing, buddy? Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, I want to thank you for reaching out. Um, I think I told the story uh, in a book club update, but David reached out to me on Twitter, said he had this book, Mr. All Around. And the thing about Mr. All Around, uh, the book, I, I had seen you kind of poking around on there already. Like, you must have maybe reached out to some like, I had seen the cover. I, as soon as you reached out to me and I saw the book, I'm like, oh, I've seen this book. So I was excited to check it out. And I was telling you before, I didn't know anything about Tom uh, before I read it. But uh, definitely a fascinating life. I want to start with this, David, because I think it's important to understanding the book and understanding mm -hmm. Tom and understand is that people understand what a big deal Big Five basketball is in, in, in Philadelphia. 
Um, just because I think, you know, like a program like LaSalle, you know, is not necessarily a national power in 2018. But we just had the other night, Penn beat Villanova for the first time in however long. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think if you think about Philadelphia basketball right now, you think about Villanova. But there's this big five thing there that exists and is, I'm sure, important to you growing up. You went to LaSalle. I'm sure it was important to you when you were in college. Can you talk a little bit about big five basketball and what it means to Pennsylvania, Philadelphia specifically? Yeah, um, I think you kind of you kind of nailed it in, in regards to like the popularity. I'm not just saying this because I'm a Philly homer and I live in the area, but I really do think that um, the best college basketball experience is definitely in Philly, Philadelphia, uh, with the Big Five, with uh, Penn, St. Joe's, Temple, LaSalle, and Villanova. Obviously, Villanova has been seeing the headlines uh, over the last couple of years, and you know, two national championships in three years, and and so forth, but um, just all the programs have such rich history, and uh, I think it's so special. I don't know if you ever got a chance to watch a game or see a game on TV or attend a game in person, but the Palestra is just one of the all-time greatest places to watch a basketball game. I mean, they packed the house even for high school basketball games there, Catholic League Championship, Public League Championship games, and it's such a big uh, venue. It's such, it's such a, not only is it historic, but it's just cool, you know, Having a game at like 11 a.m. on a Saturday or one o'clock game, the sun goes through the roof and like just uh, you know lights the entire stadium. It's really neat. But uh, yeah, Big Five basketball is definitely special in Philadelphia. Um, every game is close. I don't care if the spread's minus 22 and a half or um, you know, and someone's 0 and 10 and the other team's undefeated. Like every single game is close. Um, it may be a possession or two, but it's not never usually a blowout. Uh, but yeah, Big Five is definitely special, and uh, you know Tom Gola is a part of that Big Five history, and I think it's so important to kind of like, tell his story, not only just through the South basketball, just through Philadelphia basketball, but kind of through that Big Five angle as well. Yeah, I mean, I was honest with you from the jump. Like, I didn't know Tom really who he was until I got the book, mm-hmm. and it was interesting to me because my assumption is that you being a LaSalle student you know, graduate from there or whatever, was that what kind of inspired you to want to tell his story? Like, hey, this is our guy, you know, and, and, and this is our guy, and look at all he's accomplished, and there's this bozo in Buffalo who doesn't even know who he is. I got to get this story on paper and, like, talk about my guy. Like, this is our dude. We got to get him. We got to get his name out there. Was that, like, part of your motivation for wanting to write this book? Yeah, it was. Um, I, you know, I'm a big basketball fan of the team pretty closely when I was in school, and you know, if you look at this at the history books of college basketball, um, and top top four scoring Lionel Simmons went to LaSalle. He's I believe he's third or fourth um, in all time scores in NCAA history, and uh, number one in NCAA history in total rebounds collected is Tom Gola. He's two thousand two hundred and one. So I mean, the two number one stats on the stat sheet at the end of the day belongs to uh, Tom Gola and you know Lionel Simmons, who also went to LaSalle, is in the top. So, both the bat, LaSalle has a very rich history in that. And I just wanted people to kind of know that. Um, I knew of Gola because obviously the, the arena was named after him, Tom Gola Arena. Um, and, you know, he has, you know, has a statue and stuff like that. But um, I really wanted to paint a picture of, like, why people have, why he has that, uh, why he has the statue and, and, and why his, his name is so synonymous with basketball. I mean, like, people. Um, like he, like I said, he, in Philly and, and hopefully nationwide too, like 
Tom Cole, you say his name, and people bring back memories. I mean, I still get emails now from people who have read the book now that just like talking all of him and just like, oh wow, Tom Gull was great. Like he was Magic Johnson before Magic Johnson. So I just wanted to just really tell his story. And uh, it was, I was just lucky enough that I went to LaSalle, kind of made the connection with his family that way. And then one thing led to another. And then uh, the book, you know, came to fruition, which is, which I'm so blessed and honored to do. And uh, the book was a grind, but I'm, I hope people really get to know and learn more about Tom Gull, the man himself. We were uh, talking with Jane Levy earlier in the fall, and she had just she just wrote a book about Babe Ruth, and um, she, yeah, she had been on the podcast, so she's been on many times. And one time that she was on, it was she was promoting her Mickey Mantle book, and I was kind of asking her about the differences between the Mantle book and the Ruth book, and she said, "Well, one thing that was more difficult this time around was telling a story so far in the past. Almost everyone was dead, and obviously Tom died, I think, in 2014." And you're talking about a guy who was in his prime in the 50s. Did you have similar struggles with, you know, trying to track down leads or track down stories and, and running into people being passed away or not remembering as well? Or was there a challenge with the the time gap from when you, you know, a, a, someone was a star in the 50s and trying to write about him in 2018? Yeah, uh, there was indeed. Um I kind of had the same struggle Jane did uh, in regards to, uh, you know, getting getting not only accurate, but just like I said, getting in touch with people. I think from, uh, you know, LaSalle won a 1954 national championship in, 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 the, in basketball. And, uh, you know, I think there's only about three or four players from that team that are still alive. Uh, luckily, um, Tom Gola's brothers are, are alive and his brother played with him on uh, when he was a junior and senior and, uh, yeah, I think out of, you know, Gola played from 1952 to 1955. And, uh, I think that the, the, one of the things was is that, um, I barely talked to my total between those four years, maybe like, I would say less than five players. Um, so I did really do my due diligence in, uh, you know, making th- sure things were accurate because I did find things, even in papers are wrong with someone would say, yeah, we beat St. John 55 to 45. But then I looked at the paper, and it was, you know, they beat uh, St. John, but it was uh, 65 to 42. You know, like, so, like, just accuracy, and I just wanted to make sure I was right. I, I fact-checked a lot. But, yeah, it's kind of my struggle. I mean, it's sad, it's sad to say that these players have passed on, but, you know, that's kind of the truth of struggle when you're writing a book about, you know, the era of 1950 and, you know, 1960s. One thing I thought was super interesting about Tom is, Basically, his whole life and all these amazing things that happened and all happened pretty much in Philadelphia, right? I mean, he went to LaSalle High School, goes to LaSalle College, wins an NBA championship uh, for the Philadelphia Warriors uh, as a rookie in, what, 1956, I think. You know, then he goes on to mm-hmm. represent uh, Pennsylvania uh, as a state representative. He was a, what, a city controller. All this stuff is like his life was... It all happened like within a few blocks. It's like a pretty amazing journey. Goes to all these different events, but they're all, they're all pretty much in Philadelphia, which I thought was pretty fascinating. I mean, he's got to be. We we talk about Philly athletes, and I think of Rocky, and that's so silly because he's not even real. And I think after reading this book, I'm going to think of Tom yeah. a lot more, right? Because he's just man. Everything he did happened in Philadelphia. It's incredible. 
Yeah, it really, it really is. I mean, I don't really see a lot of those people. You don't see a lot of those kind of stories today. Uh, if you do, uh, fortunately, not only just sports-wise, but popularity, you know, like, Philly's uh, afterthought when you were successful in this, you know, 2018 popularity, such digital, you know, social media age now. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he succeeded in everything he did. And not only did he succeed, but he just really respected the city of Philadelphia. I mean, when he, um, the San Francisco Warriors, or sorry, when the Philadelphia Warriors were sold to San Francisco, he went with the team for a few games and was out there for a few months. But wanted to come back, um, he got traded to the Knicks. But while he was still playing for the Knicks, he still lived in Philly. So, uh, you know, on game days and practices, he would just drive with the turnpike and meet a teammate, meet his teammate Dave Bud. Sometimes he also play for the Knicks. And they literally carpooled to Philly. So, I mean, like, I mean, kind of like you buy hate I hate driving far, especially. I don't mind a trip, but. I would hate to even drive like an hour or two for work. Um, that's just a pet peeve of mine. But I can't imagine, you know, being a basketball player and, um, you yeah. know, having the luxury to do that, but do that in general. So I think this shows like the homage of, uh, of Philadelphia, what Gola wanted to give back to the city. And I think, I think in a way, when he gave back to Philly, Philly embraced him that way. So I think it's kind of cool. But yeah, it's really neat to see him, like, literally, he succeeded in everything he did, which is kind of neat. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about, like, in Buffalo, we have Rob Gronkowski. Rob Gronkowski didn't even play his senior year of high school in Buffalo. He went to Pennsylvania to do that. Then he went to the University of Arizona, then New England. You know, Patrick Kane was a number one overall pick in the NHL draft. He was born and raised in Buffalo. But he didn't even play all his youth hockey in Buffalo. He played some of his youth hockey in Detroit. uh, And then went to London, Ontario Mm -hmm. for the OHL and obviously winning Stanley Cups in Chicago. So it's, I mean, just think about anyone probably listening and think of the best athlete to ever play in their city or be from their city, and chances are most of their athletic success happens somewhere else. Um, yeah, you're right. Which is, yeah, which is just incredible about, about Tom being able to do it all um, right there in Philly. We talked a little bit about the um, the difficulty of some of the research and stuff, and Tom passed away in 2014. But you did have a chance to talk to him a little bit in 2013, correct? Can you tell us I about did, that? Yeah. Yeah. It was... Um... Yeah, it, it was kind of like, so, it's kind of cool how it started. So, I hope, you know, hopefully, uh, if there's any uh, college kids listening to this, that they kind of get influenced by, you know, the story behind this. So, like, I really, this book kind of started as, like, a, a school project for me. So, like, I literally was in the archives at LaSalle University, and um, the archivist said that he had a chance to meet Goal, and I was there doing the research for my senior project on, like, the history of like the LaSalle for a mascot. And he said, I, I, I can meet Tom Gold. Uh, I, I have access to Tom Gold if you want to meet him. And I, I said, sure. Um, so then I met him, uh, and, you know, at the time, uh, he wasn't in the best state of health. And I wouldn't say he was in hospice care, but it was like assisted living. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I got as much as I could out of him. He didn't speak too well, but like, I knew in his mind he was there. If he couldn't, I know he physically couldn't speak much, but I know I know he could interpret what I was saying and you know gave a wink and said what he could. But that was kind of my, my struggle. And going back to your question about like you know dealing with uh, error that is kind of before your time, my, my struggle was just making sure everything was accurate. Like I can't imagine like if he was alive or even was you know just functional to have a conversation like we're having today or can comprehend something that this book could have probably been like four hundred plus pages and. Maybe I would have had some dirt or I would have had, you know, a bigger kind of uh, chapter and outline of, like, who he was. And I think I, I covered it, but I can't imagine 
like like I said, if if he was alive, maybe the book would have been a little bigger. Um, but yeah, um, it was it was neat meeting him, and uh, it's it, it's always cool. I mean, I've been fortunate in my career, you know, as a journalist and as a former TV reporter to interview some cool people, and I've always you know always put my fandom to the sides. But it was really neat to meet Gull in person. Uh, definitely. Uh, I didn't know when I met him that, you know, I would end up writing a book about him, which is kind of cool to look back at at that moment. Would you say that maybe the, the him going to the military is maybe an example of if he was alive and more active where you could have maybe got more information than what you got? Is that maybe a good example of something that you think could have been a bigger part of the book? Or do you think that... Yeah, I... Yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, um, yeah I think... I think that's probably an angle. I probably should have uh, maybe elaborated more in the military chapter a little bit because um, he did play basketball and stuff. And like I said, it was kind of difficult research in that phase because right. it wasn't much. But uh, in the book, the the Behind the Iron Curtain tour in 1964 with that all-star team with like Bill Russell, Red Arbach, and all those guys and Oscar Robinson, uh, his wife Caroline actually told me that he wrote a journal during that trip. So... Um, and that was a long trip too. So I was, I was banking on finding that journal and, and literally I was going to, I was going to transcribe the whole journal and just put it in the whole chapter itself. Because I think that would have painted a really cool picture of like what it was like to, you know, hang out with Bill Russell. What was it like to be in a, you know, to have African, African American players on your team in another country during, you know, when, 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 you know, civil rights weren't were the best in, in the country and in the United States and, and, and throughout the world. So, that's one of the chapters, I, two chapters I probably should have uh, elaborated on, but I wish I found that journal. I didn't get a chance to find it. Caroline couldn't find it, his wife. Um, but yeah, um, it would have been really neat to to, to have found that and maybe uh, uncovered another gem in this book. Uh, Mr. All Around is the name of the book. It's by David Grisbowski. We're talking to David here. Really excited uh, that he reached out to us and we had a chance to read this book and help him promote it. Uh, it's a perfect, um, perfect size for a Christmas stocking. Uh, for sure, you could fit it in a pretty much any stocking, or you could wrap it and put it under the tree, and you, you won't embarrass yourself putting this under the tree. How did you get? Uh, how'd you get Rafferty to do the uh, forward? Rafferty, yeah. So, um, yeah, Bill Rafferty, legendary broadcaster, is uh, wrote the forward for the book. Um, he's actually at LaSalle alum as well, pretty active at the program. I, I've had a uh, relationship with him. Actually, I interviewed him when I was like a freshman or sophomore at LaSalle, which is when I was six years. Actually, more than that now, probably like I don't know, eight years ago or so, and uh, just kept in contact with him over, over time. And uh, I know it, there was actually he was he was like the only person I thought of to write the to, the forward because you know he's a popular guy, he's still in the broadcast now. I mean, I feel like Twitter tweets about him once once a week, especially during uh, NCAA March Madness. You know, onions and send in Jerome probably gets tweets tweeted like eight hundred times a day. Um, but it's cool, to, like you said. I think that's another kind of uh, feather in the cap for LaSalle to have another notable alum like Bill Rafferty be the uh, be an alum, and and other like 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 others like Gola are kind of add credibility to LaSalle and to like the basketball program as a whole. But yeah, I'm really, really it's really cool. Rafferty uh, wanted to get on board, and uh, yeah, he's great. He's all time favorite. Yeah, that's that's awesome. You know, I'm curious, David. To, how have you found the promotion part of this like you spend all this time you write this book get it published what what have you enjoyed about the post the promoting part i see you're out there all the time on twitter social media you got that part now what about 
interviews you've done, TV you've done, book signings, creative ideas? Like what have you done and enjoyed or maybe not enjoyed about kind of promoting this book and trying to get it out there to the masses? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's, um, I told my publisher actually, like literally before I even finished a book, probably like, I don't know, I, I finished a book probably a, a while, a good while ago, but even before that, I said, hey guys, just so you know, like, I'm more excited to finish, to, to market the book than I am finishing it because, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I follow, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk and all these guys and, um, these entrepreneurs I look up to and, 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 you know, I'm a TV person, a heart media guy, digital guy, but, I pretty much had that background of just like being forward thinker and being different. I mean, I created a logo for this book. Uh, I never, never saw a book kind of promote a logo or and like have like a logo, have a website. Uh, I put the logo on t-shirts and gave away a hundred t-shirts to my book event at the students, uh, at LaSalle. And I put, um, I'm actually wearing a hoodie now of my, uh, the lo- of that logo. You know, I've really wanted to brand the book and, um, got a really cool emblem with a silhouette of, you can look at my Twitter and, to check it out. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed branding the book and I'll be honest, the book, the book marketing is really like peaks and valleys. I mean, it, it, when it first came out, it came out, uh, November 15th, uh, so almost a month, um, uh, almost a month coming up, but, um, yeah, it's a grind, man. It's really, um, you know, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I've been in the TV business for five years and, um, I never thought I'd write a book, but I'm happy to say it. So, and it's the hardest thing I've ever done, and it's actually motivates me to write another one. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the book marketing is great. Um, been doing a lot of interviews, and uh, you know, all it takes is one interview, one podcast. Hopefully, this is it. And you know, next thing you know, your book's doing well, and uh, people eat it up. But um, at the end of the day, I just want people to, you know, I I really appreciate when you know a, a classmate of Gola emails me and says thank you, you captured my childhood perfectly like that that means so much more than just like you know five people buying 10 copies of my book um it's like the little things that matter most but yeah i must say it is really a really cool feeling walking into a barnes and noble and seeing your book on the shelf um I, you know i'd be lying to say i didn't go to barnes and nobles during this book process just to research steal books and what was it like? What, what what jackets were like? What the uh, not that I had too much say in it, but I just wanted the research of like how things were. You know, how many blurbs were on certain books? What what fonts were? You know, there's different styles I think that are there. So it's really cool to kind of study that. And I think with my next book, I'm trying to figure that out now. And, you know, have some coal in the fire, but I know that this is going to prepare me for my next big one, and I'm excited to kind of get started with it, uh, whatever that is. Uh, the website that. David was mentioning is Tom G O L A book dot com. Uh, you can see the logo he made there, and uh, there's also some easy links to um, some different places on the internet to buy the book, and also links to uh, his social media as well that you can check out. So I wanted to mention that. What you got to do, Jeff Perlman told me this trick. What you got to do when you go to Barnes and Noble to find your own book is you take it from like the sports section or wherever it's, and then you got to br- walk it up to the front and like put it in front of the Michelle Obama mm-hmm. book, you know, which you know because every time. <laughs> You know, or the, yeah, the yeah, Bill yeah. O'Reilly, whoever whoever he's killing this summer. Like, you got to put the book in front of yeah. that book. You know, it's like kind of some good guerrilla marketing there. You know, give it a, a, a yeah, more prominent. Totally. I haven't, I, yeah, I've actually reached out to Jeff during this process. He's been really helpful and inspiring to me. You know, he interviewed like 400 plus people for his book, and I interviewed 125, and I had a headache with 125. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. He, like to interview 400 plus people. He's a beast for sure. He's a really nice, really yeah, nice but, guy. I'm not surprised that he's. Helped you. He's been really good to me too over the years. So, 
Yeah, I um, but I haven't done that yet. I'm waiting. I'm waiting till I at least have event. My events are done because I don't want to, you know, piss anyone off. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's definitely gonna happen soon. So if if you're in a, if you're in um, the Philadelphia area within a hundred miles and you're walking to Barnes and Noble, I might definitely uh, you know, put my my book in front of uh, you know, the best some of the best authors. Right, you got to hustle, man. It's yeah, like a yeah. it really is. Like no doubt, you're gonna go to any like I have so I have. I was gonna say you're gonna go to any yeah, like, big five games and, and sell books or do any events uh, surrounding. Yeah, you. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have been doing that. Um, I'm actually doing an event um, with uh, Ray Didinger. He's a Hall of Fame uh, sports writer here in Philadelphia. He's on Eagles post game and pre game live here in Philly. So we're doing a joint kind of like Eagles discussion slash Tongola book discussion. Uh, we're both from the same publisher, Temple University Press. So. Um, it, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of just playing cool events, um, you know, book signings, like it, I, like Jeff told me, or like a nightmare sometimes, even if you're a guy like Jeff or, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. has a big audience. Yeah. Sometimes it's hit or miss. And I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a firm, you know, believer of like, you know, I'm a realist with that. So I'm trying to plan some cool events where, you know, multiple people can come for multiple different audiences, not just me. Uh, you know, I don't care if, if I'm on my eighth book or, you know, I wrote a hundred books. Uh, I just think it's cool just to, you know, not just come for one person, but come for a reason or a purpose and have fun with, you know, multiple authors, not just one. So do you know what you, do you have a, an inkling of a topic or a, a person of something you'd like to write a book about in the future? Do you like Jeff just wrote his USFL book, right? That was like his dream book. Do you have like a dream topic you'd love to do a book about sometime? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I kind of want to stick to something that I have control and I have right. I want to use my resources closely to what I can do. Uh, and I mean, you know, whether that be a connection, whether that be another LaSalle basketball book or something in Philadelphia that I have connections to that makes sense. Um, because, you know, I'll be honest, like, I've, I've had people tell me, like, oh, like, you should just do a documentary. No one's going to buy a book. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm proving people wrong. Yeah, people been books. doing great. And, yeah, people buy books. Yeah. Like, it's not a dead medium. No. I mean, if it's a dead medium, Barnes and Noble will be out of you know there will be like two Barnes and Nobles in a state, but they're everywhere. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know what my next project is next. But like I said, it's 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 a hard it's a hard grind. But man, it's it like it motivates the crap out of me to just write another one because I, I love the feeling of it. And like I said this is kind of a learning curve, and not that I got anything wrong, but I think the next one will be like ten times better than the next one. And I mean, I think Jeff could probably say that. And every any other author or any other any other work, I mean, it could be a video even or a movie. Like your first work, your second and third are always better than your first. So I'm just excited to kind of improve and learn from my mistakes of you know, even marketing it and stuff and what works, what doesn't. But uh, yeah, I'm hoping to, to get it ground running soon. But uh, I definitely, whatever I'm doing next, I know for sure that I won't announce it until the book's going to be officially out, like uh, a couple months before. Um, That's I think it's a, I think it's a grind. <laughs> Yeah, because because I feel like if you announce it too early, not that I did, but like it's kind of like buying concert tickets to Billy Joel in August, and then you don't see him until the following like December, November. Yeah, yeah, and like I, I mean, shoot, I I did that with Adele, <laughs> and like you know, I, I bought tickets in November, I literally saw her like a year later. Like I mean, like you kind of lose the flair. So you got you know, it's, you got to find a happy medium of announcing the book and also promoting it while the iron's hot. Well, you can find David on Twitter. He's at David G R Z Y T V. And again, it's Tom G O L A book.com. Uh, it's a great website to uh, 
just know where to go to buy the book. It's probably easier than me uh, saying go here, go there. It's called Mr. All Around, The Type, the Life of Tom Gola uh, with a forward by Bill Rafferty. And uh, I appreciate you reaching out to me, David. Is there anything else plug-wise you want to get out there? Yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. Like I said, if, if people are, are uh, listening from the Philadelphia area, uh, January 7th, I'll be at the Cherry Hill Library with Ray Dittinger talking about our, uh, Mr. All-Around Life, Tom Gola, and Ray will be talking about his Eagles uh, encyclopedia encyclopedia book updated with the uh, Super Bowl chapter. So uh, I hope people can check it out if you're in the Philly area. But uh, uh, yeah, I guess I guess my final thing is just support other authors. I know what it's like to kind of now write a book, and I have so much respect for other authors. So if you see a book, you know, read it up, and you know, know that a lot of people put a lot of work into it. So uh, I hope people can check out not only just my book, but other other writers that you know are putting their passion and their pride piece of paper so uh again thanks for the time man. i really appreciate the opportunity to talk about you know the book and about goals legacy yeah thank you so much for reaching out uh have a great holiday season happy new year all that stuff and uh when you get the next project rolling definitely reach back out i'll be have you on anytime yeah you got it man thanks again I want to thank the authors, David Grzbowski and Greg Renoff, for making their debuts on the Sportscasters today. Don't forget you can hear this episode and all episodes from all eight seasons of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. And if you're looking somewhere and you can't find us, email me, the Sportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll be sure to set it up. You can also find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. We're on Facebook as well, though I don't do much there. And I do have Instagram, at sportscasters there. Also, don't forget about the Motivation Through Music podcast, which has made its return. Matt Sabalski and I host that podcast. We have an episode up on Moving Pictures, an album by the band Rush. You can find more information about that at M3MPod on Twitter. Also, the greatest one-man wrestling podcast in the world is Greetings from Allentown, hosted by Bruins fan Peter Winson. He's got a new episode out today about PFW from 1989, wrestling in Florida, which includes an unbelievable promo by the great Terry Funk. For more information on that, all you have to do is click at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. All right, with all that said, it's one last thing from me tonight. And we went heavy last week and we talked about enjoying things while they're around. We talked about my relationship with my uncle. And uh, I always consult with my brother Greg on these, and he gave that one a big thumbs up. And actually, my friend Peter, who I just mentioned, also gave it a thumbs up on his podcast. A little bit lighter today, I wanted to talk about 2018 in television. I got my top five series that I watched this year. And I also want to mention another series. Let's start there. Uh, I am finally watching Justified, and it is freaking fantastic. Uh, I started like two weeks ago, and I'm already in season five. It is an awesome show. Uh, Tim, I can't think of his name, but he was the lead in Deadwood, which is a top ten show ever for me, uh, is the lead. He plays Raylan Givens. 
There's tons of beautiful women in it. There's unbelievable villain, villains. Um, Boyd Crowder is one of the great television villains of all time. I'm having a ton of fun watching this show. Uh, it's been on my list for a long time, and I finally got around to watching it. I think I'm going to watch Rescue Me next. Uh, if there's anything you think I should watch that maybe you know I haven't or you want to suggest, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, but man, if I love Justified, and it's not a first-run show, so it's not on my best 2018 list, but if I was just watching, if I was just making a list of things I've watched that I've enjoyed the most in 2018, it might be Justified. I mean, I've also spent part of 2018 rewatching The Sopranos. I rewatched Parenthood. I also rewatched Deadwood and The Wire. So I do like to rewatch shows like once a year, especially my top shows. I just enjoy them. I was long overdue for a Parenthood rewatch. I finally did that. There are a couple other shows I want to rewatch, and one of them is on my list of top five. So I'll get to that. All right. My top five of 2018. Number five, Better Call Saul. Not the best season of Better Call Saul. It's a really slow burn this year. I'm Better Call Saul, but the writing is so good, and I love the characters, and I love the Breaking Bad world so much, that even though it was probably my least favorite season of Better Call Saul, uh, it's good enough to be one of the top five shows that I watched this year. Uh, just really well done. If you like, I mean, I just like being in that world, right? I just like, I just like that world, world that Gilligan has created, and I want to be in it, and I want to find out. When he breaks, you know, as we've been watching Jimmy turn into Saul and what's going to happen with his girlfriend and will we meet Jesse along the way or Walt, you know, who's going to show up, you know, what's going on with Nacho, just like all these different things. There's a really cool story arc this year that I'm kind of building the lab where Walt eventually makes math and you kind of see the origins of that. So really a great show. I put it at number five. Number four, The Deuce. You know, The Wire is one of my all-time favorite shows, and um, the, the makers of The Wire are back with The Deuce. It's a look at the porn and sex culture in New York in the 70s, 80s. Really a fascinating show. Good first season, great second season. I'm all in on The Deuce. Really enjoyed it this year. Great characters, good writing, interesting period piece. So I really enjoy that one. Great show on HBO. AMC for Better Call Saul. Uh, number three, I put Glow, which is a Netflix show. Uh, Glow has been one of the great surprises as far as Netflix goes. Kind of was worried because I got bored with Orange is the New Black, which was terrible this year, which would be in my bottom five if I ranked it. Got bored with that. And uh, I also got bored with House of Cards. I didn't even watch the last season. No interest. And I was worried, are they going to be able to put out new shows that I like? And Glow is fantastic. Uh, it's a show based on the ridiculous 80s wrestling promotion of the same name. Great acting. Mark Marin is decent in it. The girls are great. Alison Brie, I think, is one of the leads. I'm not great with names. Uh, but really good. Like Glow a lot. Number two, Cobra Kai. Most years it would be number one. There is one show a little higher, mostly because it was a finale. I'll talk about that in a second. But Cobra Kai, look at this. The fact that in 2018, 
YouTube Red, I think it's called now, I think it's just YouTube Premium, put out a program based on the Karate Kid, and it was good, is like 30 years of wet dreams for me, all coming at once. It's like, I can't believe it could happen. How could they go into the world of the Karate Kid without Mr. Miyagi, who's passed away, and put something out that I would enjoy, that I would love, and they did it with Cobra Kai. I believe the pilot is free. If you haven't watched it, I think you can search the Cobra Kai pilot on YouTube and watch it with just a couple ads. It is so well done. I just realized that one of the main karate kids in there is actually Victor from Parenthood, which it took me probably too long to realize. Uh, but he was just a little kid now. Now he's a big kid. Uh, but, man, it's so good. Danny Danny LaRusso is back. Ralph Macchio is so great in it. And Johnny... And the Cobra Kai's, they tell this great story about how they were going to, how Johnny's telling a story about how he met Ellie with an eye. And uh, he talks about how his, his friend in the Cobra Kai was a big Mr. T fan. And I mean, I popped so hard. Like, I was just so pumped. It's so great. Oh, almost every year would be number one. But this year, I had to put the Americans number one. Just an excellent final season on FX. XFX has great shows. I love I love Fargo. I love Justified, which I raved about. And The Americans is their number one Hall of Fame show. Top five show for me all time because it's just such a great final season. The, the payoff of the Stan, and I won't give it away, but there's they do pay off the will Stan find out about who his neighbors are. They pay that off. And it's done so incredibly well. An intense scene. Just a great final season of a great show. You know, nothing makes me happier to see a show that I love so much kind of finish strong, kind of go out on top like that. It was so awesome. A great year. Great year in TV. Uh, Again, I had Better Call Saul at 5, The Deuce at 4, Glow at 3, Cobra Kai 2, and The Americans number 1. And I did want to mention, as well as a side note, how much I've loved Justified, which I'm finally watching, uh, even though I know it closed up in 2015 or something like that. It's a great year to love TV. There's so many ways to find shows. I know we went a little lighter today. Uh, Like I said, last week was uh, more intense. One last thing, so I wanted to just back up a little bit. Next week, for one last thing, we'll recap Season 8 of the Sportscasters. I'll give my thank yous, which will include a thank you to you for listening to this show. I really appreciate your support. One more show in 2018. Yeah.